0: Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, it's part two of Lindsey Chervinsky and Clay Jenkinson's conversations about Theodore Roosevelt.
1: 26th president of the United States, came to the presidency through the back door when William McKinley was assassinated in September of 1901, probably the most consequential president of the 20th century until after World War II.
0: And you begin the conversation, well, talking about animals in the White House, and that was delightful and entertaining.
1: They had a menagerie that included a parrot that said, hooray for Roosevelt, and much, much more. Our friend Lindsey Trevinsky has many wry opinions about Theodore Roosevelt, but all of them insightful.
0: And we also devote a lot of time to talking about Roosevelt the Reformer.
1: And much more. Including, please don't
0: call me Teddy. Please join us for all that and more on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do? Our weekly opportunity to discuss current American events with President Thomas Jefferson, who is seated across from me now and good day to you,
1: Mr. Jefferson. Good day to you, citizen.
0: Mr. Jefferson, we've received a couple of inquiries, one from Stanley Hall and one from Joe Lovell, and they're similar in nature in that they're both concerned about how originalist views of the Constitution are affecting American policy.
1: I'm an originalist, I would say, by which I mean the Constitution is a social compact that was drafted in Philadelphia in 1787 and then ratified state by state. In 1788, Rhode Island waited a little longer before it eventually Ratified, and what it said was that these are the powers that government has. It enumerated those powers, especially in Article I. It set the procedures for elections and impeachment and the Electoral College and so on. And my view is that that is not just an enabling document, but it is a restraining document and it draws a boundary outside of which the government of the United States should not venture without explicit approval by the American people through a new constitutional amendment. In other words, we should do what the Constitution enables us to do and not more. Well, Mr. President, you you say you're an originalist, but
0: how does that fit with your concept of the Constitution as a living, evolving document?
1: Well, I don't really think it should be an evolving document. I think we should live strictly under it by way of original intent, for about 19 years, and then tear it up and start over. In other words, we should have a series of literally and tightly interpreted constitutions that we follow exactly according to what they enumerate and what they don't during the period of a single generation. And when that generation passes, after, say, 19 years statistically, then we should start over and build another document fit for those times, those circumstances, those needs, those technologies, those demographic data, and then live under that Constitution strictly, originally for 19 years, and so on and so forth. Mr.
0: Lovell uh, takes the view that an originalist view of the Constitution uh, makes the Federal Reserve unconstitutional, therefore void. If that's true, sir, what happens if our Supreme Court strikes down the Federal Reserve Bank on originalist grounds.
1: If the court were strictly dedicated to originalism, much of what you take for granted would be struck down because you would go to the Constitution that was written in 1787 and you would search it carefully and you would ask, is it there? Is judicial review there? Is the Federal Reserve Bank there? Is the CIA there? Is the National Endowment for the Arts there? And you would find in almost every case that these are not enumerated powers. Now, if Hamilton were here, Colonel Hamilton, he would say, no, you have to have a flexible constitution. There have to be implied powers. And he said that the general welfare clause in the preamble and the necessary and proper clause that comes up much later essentially were elastic clauses that enable each generation to do certain things within broad limits and call them constitutional. I think that way is the source of corruption and metaphysics.
0: Well, sir, as a citizen, I, of course, worry about personal freedoms and rights of citizens. And, sir, it seems that the Supreme Court has the power to take away my personal rights.
1: I believe you are correct for your time. But let me remind you of two things. First of all, the Ninth Amendment in the Bill of Rights explicitly says this list herein is not intended to be complete or exhaustive, that there may be other rights worth cherishing that are not enumerated in the bill of rights that's first and secondly remember that in the state of nature we have absolute rights we surrender in trust a few of them to government but we never surrender the broad world of our rights we retain those and we should be eternally vigilant to protect them against any incursion by any government anywhere well mr jefferson it would seem that one branch of government is uh, ordained with a great deal of power should never have happened sir the third branch should be the weakest by far and merely advisory thank you so very much
0: mr jefferson
1: you are welcome sir
0: and welcome to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. I'm your host, David Swenson. I'm joined by the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson, and also our friend and guest this week, Lindsay Chervinsky. And the two of you are back because last week we did a program on Theodore Roosevelt, and several times during the show, you both mentioned that One program was not going to be enough, and we should do a second. And after the show, it was agreed that we would do a second. I have a list of topics that you've sent to me, but I'd like to start with one of my own, if I may. And and that is the Please Don't Call Me Teddy story, uh, which you've shared with me. And could you share it with the audience and tell me, is it true?
1: Yes, he's invariably called Teddy and Teddy Roosevelt, um, and he didn't like it. Uh, He regarded the name Teddy as a diminutive, as a boy's name. It was also the name that his first wife, Alice, used for him as a term of endearment. And after her death on Valentine's Day, 1884, he almost never spoke of her again. She's not in his autobiography. He refused to talk to his daughter, same name, uh, about her mother. And when his daughter, Alice, asked about her mother, he said, talk to your grandparents. He was a bit of a posing a little as the Victorian man of grief, but he also really was deeply uh, damaged by the death of his wife when she was just 25 years old of Bright's disease from complications of birthing her child, Alice. And so when people called him Teddy, it graded. He couldn't stop it. And you can't really stop it today. But when I give talks sometimes, I say, please don't call him Teddy. Please don't call me Teddy.
2: Were you aware of this, Lindsay? I was. And I think he actually resented they, you know, after he retired, they created, I think that's when the teddy bear started kind of coming into fashion. And he didn't particularly like that either. So I always refer to him either as T.R. or Theodore Roosevelt.
1: He also said Theodore Rex would work. Um, but, of course
2: he did. <laughs> but uh, just
1: about the teddy bear quickly. Um He got a letter from a a toy manufacturer in New York um, who said, we have a line of cloth giraffes and cloth mooses and cloth this and that. Would you mind terribly much if we created a cloth bear and called it the teddy bear? And Roosevelt wrote back and said, yeah, I don't think this will take off.
2: So wrong again. Well, and it's actually, that's so so perfect because that leads very nicely. David, I'm going to do a transition here. I hope you don't mind terribly, but it leads very nicely into our first topic, which was the menagerie of animals that they had around the White House and then, of course, around their estate. And one of the items was, in fact, a pet bear.
1: A bear, but also a snake that his daughter Alice used to, wear around her neck at dinner parties, thus freaking almost everybody out. And they had a pony, a Shetland pony, that one of the sons brought up in the White House elevator because his brother was sick. And they had a badger he out in western Kansas, town I know well, Sharon Springs, Kansas, on his famous nineteen oh three visit to twenty six states and all of that. He met these little girls in a church in Sharon Springs, Kansas, and uh, they were lovely little girls in white dresses, and afterwards he was mingling with the the, the the parishioners outside of this church, and this little girl came up and said, hey, hey, you want a badger? And he said, sure, okay. So she rode out to their ranch and brought back this badger that her brother had captured. It was a baby badger, and so Roosevelt took it on the train, and they fed it potatoes and named it Josiah, and it lived in the White House for quite a while, and, and according to all of the traditions, which appear to be accurate it would like bite the heels of congressmen and it was a vicious you know a badger is not a tameable pet it's a vicious little creature it eventually it died and for many years it was on display in the house they stuffed it of course what else does a roosevelt do and uh, now there's a now there's a question whether the there's a badger at uh sagamore hills interpretive center and the question is is that josiah or is that uh like a stunt badger
2: well, and they also had a real—they had a real knack for naming these pets in just kind of hilariously, um, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, ironic, uh, ironic, but also irreverent uh, ways. So the bear was named Jonathan Edwards after the the preacher. They had a macaw named Eli Yale after the creator or the founder of Yale. They had a a series of guinea pigs, which were named Admiral Dewey, Dr. Johnson, Bishop Doan, and Fighting Bob Evans. They had Maud the pig. They had Baron Spreckle the hen. A one-legged rooster. A hyena, which may have given the badger a run for its money. Peter the rabbit, and then Algonquin the pony. So, And then a, a series of dogs, a ton of dogs.
1: Many dogs. And, and and Roosevelt said whenever a dog died, there would be like a state funeral in the White House grounds because the children were very rambunctious and deeply sentimental children. And they had a parrot, and the parrot was trained to say, hooray for Roosevelt!
2: <laughs> this is my kind of house. I love a, a house full of pets. I think this is brilliant.
1: You can hardly attack them for their reverence. I'm I, I'm told on good authority you have a dog named Quincy after the...
2: Well, actually, his full name is John Quincy Dog Adams. So I give proper tribute to all of the names. But yes, Quincy for short. And he takes after his namesake. He is smart and stubborn and not always a fan of people. Abolitionist. Yes, naturally, and uh, very full of his own opinions. so he is he's is well, well yeah,
0: I, I'm listening to the two of you talk about this and I'm thinking, well, if this was in a contemporary time, how would the press deal with this? How did the press deal with with Roosevelt and I mean, was it an item and, and in general, how did how did the press deal with Roosevelt?
1: They loved Roosevelt and they loved the Roosevelts because if ever there was good copy, It was the family of Theodore Roosevelt in the White House because the children would walk around on sticks and they would take trays from the White House mess and go down the staircases, down the banisters, and they were roller skating on the floors, pets coming and going. It was a zoo in all sorts of senses of that term. And of course, the press loved it because previous to that, you know, McKinley, a colorless and odorless president, Grover Cleveland, Benjamin Harrison, even Taft was a dullard compared to the Roosevelt's. And so Roosevelt had this ironed law that they couldn't write about the children without permission. And Edith didn't want them ever to write about the children, but the children were frequently cornered by reporters saying... Uh, your father's uh, Panama policy, uh, can you give us some <laughs> insights about that? And they would they would rise up and try to be profound on these questions.
2: Well, and they had good reason to have that information because they also were sort of notorious for hiding in the trees around the White House. <laughs> so they would regularly eavesdrop on conversations of people walking around and uh, had had notorious hiding spots. So they were perhaps better informed than one might imagine small children would be. Hi.
1: They were dropping water balloons on reporters, and uh, they um, they had a spitball contest in which they uh, stuck spitballs to some of the paintings of previous presidents. And Roosevelt had to go, you know, give them the full stern treatment about this. He was such an indulgent father. Edith was quite stern as a mother, his second wife, uh, the mother of five of the six children. Roosevelt was just like a 12-year-old boy, really, and he was often in trouble too. In fact, one time they were at Sagamore and they went in their point-to-point walk and they got all wet with brand new clothes on, and and Roosevelt came back and he said the person who was most put in that period's equivalent of time out was Roosevelt himself, that Edith was not amused at his poor parenting skills.
0: There's one other item from last week that I wanted to touch on, and that was Roosevelt being shot while giving a speech.
1: Shot before giving a speech. So he was having dinner in in Milwaukee in October of 1812, towards the end of the very crazy and extremely exhausting Bull Moose campaign, which he lost, got 29% of the vote, the largest third-party vote in American history. But he was about to give a speech in Milwaukee. He was at supper in a hotel, walked out got into a jalopy, was shot at point-blank range. Uh, He said, he pinked me. And then Roosevelt spit into his hand, and he said, I'm an old big-game hunter. There's no blood in my spittle, so I probably will live. So he insisted on going to the auditorium. He he gave an 84-minute speech, but he said at the beginning, he said, I need you to all listen very carefully. I may not be at full strength tonight. You see, I have just been assassinated.
2: Well, and the reason it didn't actually kill him, of course, was because... Anyone who has, you know, tried the trick where you fold up paper a certain number of times knows how intensely strong that can become. He had his speech folded up in his pocket and the bullet wedged in the paper and it probably saved his life.
1: And during the speech, David, he had the 50 pages of the speech with a bullet hole and some blood stains on them. And he was giving them away as souvenirs to people in the audience like, hey, here's one for you.
2: See, this is the kind of information that, you know, last week we talked about just how much fun it is to read about Roosevelt. Who else does that? Who else gives away bloody pieces of paper? It's just the most remarkable, most remarkably unique presidential story.
1: But as a woman and as a feminist and as somebody who is, I think, has a certain edge about male ego— <laughs> if ever there was a, a, a profound egotist and a person of sort of over overwhelming masculinity in the White House, this is T.R., right? I mean, he's a Hamiltonian, but there must be parts of T.R. that you don't really like very much.
2: Well, his sense about where women belonged is obviously, I think, woefully outdated. Um, he believed that they belong in the House and they belonged by the hearth, and they were supposed to do certain things. Um, I obviously don't subscribe to that notion of femininity. And, but I also kind of, I don't, it's not that I dismiss that, but also, you know, generations and generations and generations of leaders thought that about women. And so it's not as though he was unique in in that one way. Obviously, some of we talked about last week some of his more racially tinged ideas are are significantly problematic but i find so much to enjoy about him i find so much to laugh about him i find so much to admire about his spirit and his audacity that I can appreciate those things while also acknowledging that, yes, there are these frustrating elements. And what I like best, I think, about his relationship with women is we're going to do at some point in the future program on Alice, his daughter. But at one point, he basically said, I can be the president or I can be Alice's father. I can't be both because he recognized that she just could not be handled. And I like that very much.
1: We'll take a short break here. You're listening to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. When we come back, I want to ask you about Roosevelt's Jingoism, his love of war and combat. You're listening to the Thomas Jefferson Hour.
0: Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. This week, our conversation, our second conversation, about Theodore Roosevelt. When we took our break, Clay, you had a question that you wanted to pose to Lindsey.
1: Yes. So, Dr. Chervinsky, our friend Lindsey, we know there, we know there's a downside of Roosevelt: the the race issues, the Brownsville incident, um, you know, the fact that in, in 1912 the Bull Moose Party really marginalized. Um, African-Americans and would not allow them to take seats at their convention and his attitude towards Native Americans. And he's something of a male chauvinist and so on. And I take the whole man theory on Jefferson, on Abigail Adams, on on everybody, um, so that we need to find balance. But, But one of the things that he was accused of throughout his lifetime and was an issue in his lifetime was his jingoism, that he was sporting for a war. He kept saying we need war and that war cleanses the national character and restores our manliness. And now that the frontier's close, we can't become effeminate and and urban and and sedentary. That kind of belief in which he said uh, that all great nations are warring nations and all great men have a little of the wolf in them, that can, under the right circumstances, be a dangerous personal doctrine
2: uh yes for sure it it can be i think the context in which he says this is an important one because he if i'm correct i believe he said this before world war one and before 1898 yeah so i do think that and i think you know his idea about war wasn't Colored in the same way after the Spanish-American War as it was after World War I. And I think that's true of a lot of people at the time. I think the idea about war and nationalism and the role of fighting to extend or preserve or protect boundaries was sort of common practice for a really long time. The 19th, 18th, 17th, 16th, 15th, you know, I mean, these centuries were defined by various squabbles. But it was the total war of the 20th century that started to shift our thinking about, do civilized nations actually really need to behave this way? And so I do think to a certain extent, while, you know, I never want to excuse someone as a product of their time, there is a certain element of that sort of thinking about warfare. He also, I think, had a bit of a chip on his shoulder about the fact that his father hadn't fought in the Civil War, and he was keen to make sure that the Roosevelt name wasn't associated with wussiness or pacifism and the wolf part of that statement i actually think he's right i think that great leaders need to have a little bit of that killer instinct they just need to also know when to rein it in because there are times when a nation does require defense or does require decisive action it's just a matter of knowing when also not to act
1: you know your man washington during the French and Indian war made that famous journal entry where he says, you have no idea how charming it is to hear the bullets rushing. And the King of England said, well, he can't have had many of them (laughs) rushing over his head (laughs) if he can say something like that. So I I hear you and I agree with you, but, but Roosevelt was in many respects a warmonger and there's an element in the Roosevelt um, fan club that loves that too. And I think he became a man of greater moderation over time. During his presidency, we were still involved in the Philippines, but it was largely a time of peace. And I certainly agree with you that World War I, the Great War, was the most shattering experience in Western civilization until World War II.
0: One of the points on your list that I'll jump ahead to is is, is Roosevelt's sons in World War One, And did that change his attitude at all? And maybe you can give us a little backstory on that.
2: Sure. So Roosevelt was one of the early voices for the United States, trying to get the United States into war. And he loudly and frequently condemned Woodrow Wilson for not responding to German antagonisms and not defending American interests. So he was pushing the nation to try and get into war and so when the United States did finally join I think that they his son certainly joined the armed forces because they felt that that was the Roosevelt way but I'm sure there was also some fatherly pressure involved. Um, however, one of his sons, maybe his favorite son Quentin, died in World War one was I believe shot down if I remember correctly He was an early was, air
1: pilot and, yeah, over France pilot. just north of paris
2: and it was it was a a life- defining moment for Roosevelt because he had of course lost his his wife and his mother but it changed I think his ideas about warfare and one other element I think we should also keep in mind is American society really likes. The military, really likes soldiers, really likes people in uniform. That is a how in a lot of ways we define masculinity. And so he is certainly not alone in thinking that. And I don't think that's also just a characteristic of the late 19th and early 20th century. That is something that we still struggle with today.
1: I agree. And just to add one more little bit to the story of Quentin's death. So Roosevelt couldn't go himself, he went to Woodrow Wilson and, he, as he said, had in hand and and virtually begged to lead another regiment of rough riders to France. And France was actually sort of keen on that happening. But Wilson knew that this was not that sort of a war, that we were now in a much different phase in the history of warfare. And he turned Roosevelt down, I think for good reason. Roosevelt was out of shape, overweight, um, too old, um, and and war had, had been fundamentally changed by industrial equipment so roosevelt said to his sons you're all going you're all and you're not hanging back you're you're and you won't take desk jobs you will get to the front and he pushed them hard you're roosevelts you know you're roosevelts that's the roosevelt tradition and they all went and they all had trouble um kermit had ptsd afterwards Um, ted was wounded archie was wounded and Quentin was shot down uh, over France and died. And when the news came, Roosevelt was at Sagamore. And, of course, the the news came slowly. But an AP reporter or a newspaper reporter was sort of hanging around outside the house. And there was some sense that something was up. But the official word had not come yet. And so the, Roosevelt talked to the reporter. The reporter went away, came back later, and confirmed that Quentin was dead. And Roosevelt said... He went in, he thanked him. He was always gracious in this way. He went in to his study and was there for half an hour alone. And then he came out and he said, now I must do the most difficult thing that I have ever done. I must go tell Edith. And then he explained to his wife, Edith, uh, that their son was dead. And she was just as much in favor of their sons being in, in the front as, as he was. But this shattered him, uh, probably shortened his life, um, arguably would have changed his views. He didn't live long enough for us really to know that. But he also expressed in his public statement pride and said, he who is not fit to die does not deserve to live. You know, very typical Roosevelt sorts of statements. And so it's it's a wonderful story. It's a very sad story. It's a somewhat troubling story. All of the children, including Alice, spent their entire lives trying to live up to the dream and standard of their mighty father. And that has to be an extremely difficult uh, burden for anybody.
2: Well, you know, and I think we see this same challenge replicated with with a lot of presidents who are memorialized in American lore. But during World War II, FDR's thumbs, they all signed up, they were in different branches. And he made sure he didn't know where they were posted because he didn't want to make war decision and war strategy based on where his sons were, which is a pretty remarkable commitment to ensuring that they don't get any special treatment.
1: Uh, Ted was involved in World War II, uh, his son, and in fact was at Normandy and uh, distinguished himself at Normandy and was wounded again, disabled, and then a month later died of a massive heart attack Um, on the French front. And so the Roosevelt's, whatever else you want to say about the Roosevelt's, they stepped up in national service and gave the last full measure of their devotion to this country.
0: As long as we're on the subject of Roosevelt and war, one of the other items on your list is Roosevelt and the Rough Riders.
2: (laughs) Where does one even really start with this? Um, You know, the Rough Riders have become such a almost cliched thing in American history because the war itself was so short, was so almost intentionally provoked to kick out the Spanish, was never really a fair fight. Roosevelt very much participated as, one, he wanted the war experience, but as an image-making measure, he ensured that photographers were stationed with his unit such that they could capture the exploits they you know had great daring do and um sometimes that i think gets overstated in in our memory that this war was not a particularly glorious war and was not one that was necessarily justified and while his actions may have been brave i'm not sure they were necessarily heroic
1: wow i will say to this You are mostly right and then fundamentally wrong. Here's a man who could have ducked this war. The president himself twice asked Roosevelt to stay in Washington. His secretary of uh, the Navy, John Long, said, you must stay at your desk. You can serve the country much better. Edith, his wife, had just had a very, very serious gynecological operation. She begged him to stay and said, if you go get yourself killed, as is likely, what will I do to raise these children? He later said, much later, he said, I'm sorry to have to say this, he said that he would have left his wife's deathbed to go to that war. And of course, he wanted the reputation of Roosevelt, and he wanted to repair his father's um, inability, unwillingness to participate in the Civil War. But he did an amazing thing. And if you add up all the number of things he had to do to get himself to the front— There were a whole set of complications that he overcame. And then when they were there at the base of of Kettle and San Juan Hills, he was the only person on horseback. And the Spanish snipers up at the top, I've been there, had smokeless German Mauser rifles. And Roosevelt said they were shooting down his men like like 10 pins. And he uh, alone on horse assaulted that hill. Reckless maybe, uh, but it wasn't just to get good press. He felt, he, here's what he thought, Lindsay, and you tell me if, if I'm full of beans, he thought that if you plan to be a major leader of this country, and there is a war during your prime manhood, you must get yourself into that war if you can, because how dare you send other people's children into harm's way if you weren't willing to fight for this country when it needed you. Now, I know the war was largely trumped up, and John Hay called it a splendid little war and all of that, but... Roosevelt was the real item, I think.
2: Well, he certainly was brave. I would never dismiss his bravery, but what you're saying is that he directly disobeyed orders from all of his superiors to go off and have this, you know, little gallivant. He (laughs) little gallivant? He abandoned his wife. So, I, I mean, I guess I feel a little bit like it's one thing if you're talking about the Civil War and the future of the nation or World War II and it's the survival of democracy. It's another thing when it's like, well, I would really like the Spanish to leave Cuba. That would be ideal. Let's go do that. And, you know, in this in this great heroic thing that he did, he, you know, kind of the reason all of his men were getting sniped down is because they couldn't get the horses there. So, I mean, there was some some real flawed planning here in, the, in this process. And I'm not saying that he was not a brave man. He was a relentlessly brave man. And I believe that his commitment to service is incredible because he didn't have to. He was a wealthy man. He did not have to participate in public service. He did not have to participate in for- reform. He didn't have to participate in the military. But I also don't think that we should sort of overlook, like if he had gotten killed, people would have been like, well, that was a really stupid thing to do. And the assistant secretary of the Navy probably shouldn't have been there. And it's only because he had this incredible luck that we were like, oh, wow, look at this heroism."
1: Can we agree on this, my friend, that... Whatever was the foundation of his being there, he made the most of it for the rest of his life. That <laughs> he dined out on that; Without it a swept doubt. him into office. Oh, Whatever yeah. else was true, he played the Rough Rider card. Every speech he ever gave, the Rough oh, whoever yeah. was left of the Rough Riders would show up on horse and salute. And if ever anyone milked something as much as it could possibly be milked for the rest of their long and distinguished political life, it was Roosevelt.
0: Kind of kind of living the dream at the expense of others. You know, there's a lot of things on this list in front of me, so I'm going to push forward if I might maybe come back to uh, Washington. Uh, one of the things that you had listed, Lindsay, was his cabinet management. And, of course, this would give me an opportunity to offer you some time to talk about your book. Oh, well, your book on the cabinet. Oh, yes. well, thank
2: you. Yes. Yeah. Um the the concept of the cabinet and the institution of the cabinet has become a little bit of a hobby horse for me and if by hobby horse I mean career. So, I started with George Washington's cabinet. The book is called the cabinet george washington and the creation of an american institution and so as i have examined other cabinets and as i actually have an audible course with great courses plus on the best and worst presidential cabinets. so if you want I sort didn't of an know overview know that
0: you you have yeah. tell me that again That's you have cool. it's on an audible
2: It's on Audible. Uh, It's one of great courses is now actually, I think, called Wondery, but it was a Audible original course on the best and worst presidential cabinets. So I have a there's an episode on scandals. There's an episode on transitions. There's an episode on, you know, presidents at war, things like that. So um, I will
1: look for that. I will listen to that. So what is the worst just before you go on?
2: Well, there are a lot to choose from.
1: John Adams had one of the worst.
2: Yes. The overall argument is that cabinets are actually really hard and they reveal weaknesses in leadership really fast. So John Adams had a particularly difficult time. James Madison had a terrible cabinet. Andrew Johnson, not because the cabinet itself was terrible, but because he kept the cabinet and he... Sucked as president. Um,
0: so I don't know if you can say "suck" To use on, a historical technical term. <laughs> it's not a swear word, I don't think. Uh, well, um, we, but, but, but
2: move into TR's moving cabinet. In lungs, moving to TR. So but the, the most fascinating thing about TR's cabinet, we talked last week about how he could not keep a secretary of Navy to save his life. But the most fascinating thing about his cabinet was how deftly he managed the transition. Because he understood that a lot of the people in the cabinet— they of course had been McKinley's choice, and they were big old-time players in the Republican Party, including people like John Hay, who had been Abraham Lincoln's private secretary. So this was like you know a legend in the party, and it was essential for Roosevelt's success to have their stamp of approval in order to have any chance of having a successful presidency. But they didn't particularly want to serve under Roosevelt because they thought he was a bit of a you know a loose cannon, which he was. So he very astutely managed when he had learned of McKinley's assassination, he used a number of newspaper editors who were much more powerful within the party structure to convince these people that they needed to stay in office at least for a little while, just to give the country a sense of calm, to make sure the markets didn't crash, things like that. And they they did give their agreement. They said that they would stay. Then once Roosevelt got them all in one room, he relied on the power of personality. And he said, you know, I know you have to give me your resignations as as a pro forma matter, but I must reject them. And I insist that you stay in office. And they did because he was such a powerful presence. And then about eight months later, once Congress came back into session and he had sort of started to get things up and running. He started dismissing the people he didn't like, and he put his own people in office, which was absolutely the correct thing to do. Presidents need to have their own cabinets. But the way he managed it gave people so much confidence in the administration and gave him the stamp of approval from the big powers that be. And it was incredibly savvy and, and smart, and not too many other presidents have managed it that well.
1: So let me just give you one little bit of this. John Hay as Lindsay said, had been a private secretary to Abraham Lincoln. He had served almost continuously from that moment on. And so here he is, the Secretary of State. He's elderly now and ready to retire. And he was not fond of Theodore Roosevelt. He was fond of Roosevelt's father, Thee. He regarded Roosevelt as kind of an immature cowboy, loose cannon, too impulsive, not really fit for the decorum of the presidency. But he was persuaded to stay on. But then in 1905, when Roosevelt had been elected in his own right and it was his inaugural day, that morning, John Hay gave him a ring and in it was a lock of a strand of Abraham Lincoln's hair. And he said, I think knowing how deeply you revere Abraham Lincoln and how extraordinary you have been as a a president, that you should have this and it was one of the most moving events of roosevelt's life because it was an affirmation from someone who who had he knew had been quite um skeptical of tr when tr ascended through the back door to the presidency
0: we'll be back in just a moment you're listening to the thomas jefferson hour
1: to the special edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour with our friend, Dr. Lindsey Chervinsky. 10 things today, part two of 10 things about President Theodore Roosevelt, who served in office exactly 100 years after our man, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, David, you have the list, and we want to come back to it. Uh, Lindsey, I wanted to ask you one from the list, which is about Roosevelt the reformist. Uh, He was six years U.S. Civil Service Commissioner He was one of the most innovative police commissioners in the history of New York City. In 1912, Roosevelt pushed for reforms that were so far in advance of the Republican Party at the time that even his closest friend, Henry Cabot Lodge, said, I can no longer support you. You've gone too far down the progressive path. Try to assess Roosevelt's career as a reformist?
2: Well, Roosevelt, I think, was a a true reformer in that he was not a radical. He believed that reforms were essential to maintain society. He believed that reforms were essential for businesses, for government, as a way to almost hold off anarchy and extremism. But he referred to it as a square deal. So he felt like reform should be fair to both workers and consumers and travelers, but should also be fair to businessmen. He was not advocating for a lack of profit or a destruction of business. And I think that approach and his embrace of the role of journalism and the embrace of technology to achieve those aims really defines his career as a reformer. So he started in his career in New York City where whenever there would be a crime or a story that he wanted to investigate or or corruption, he would ensure that journalists came with him to investigate these stories, to report on his investigations and his activities. And this coincided with the rise of what's called muckraking journalism, real journalists who were committed to not just selling stories and talking about scandals and gossip, but uncovering corruption, uncovering wrongdoing, uncovering death and lynching and um, pollution and unfair labor practices. And so Roosevelt's aims and the aims of those journalists often coincided, and they were very happy to use each other to achieve those goals. So this came at a time when businesses and trusts were incredibly powerful There were very few protections for laborers. There were very few consumer protections for the quality of food and the quality of drug available to people buying them and came at a time when political systems were dominated by machines. And so oftentimes when we think of political corruption, if we think of political corruption today, it pales in comparison to what was sort of the norm and the standard in the 1890s and 1910s, bribes. Um, cronyism, nepotism, all of these things were a standard part. The police force was horrifically corrupt and basically only investigated crimes if if bribes were exchanged. And these were all systems that Roosevelt really tried hard to combat and I think actually really made a big difference. Do you agree?
1: Yes, I do. Certainly. Speaking of which, though, Buckraker is a term that Roosevelt coined for that brand of reporter uh, from um, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. He said there, there that good, good reformist reporters point out corruption, but some just like to rake the muck, uh, the, the, the manure. And so he coins this term. He was a, a pretty good language uh, inventor. He coined that term, muckraker. He also coined the term, good to the last drop, which is used by um, a coffee company. He coined the term, bully pulpit. He said, the presidency is not that powerful, but it is a very, very good pulpit, a bully pulpit. And he gave us the lunatic fringe, Lindsay.
2: I didn't know he came up with that phrase. That's fantastic. Yes,
1: he did. And he, he also was, David, as you know, one of the greatest masters of the insult in American history of McKinley, who would not declare war against Cuba. He said, he has the backbone of a chocolatey Claire. <laughs>
0: Let's move into one other area that you have on your list, and that's uh,
1: the coal strike of 1902. Well, let me start just by saying, at that time, coal was what oil and natural gas are now. Couldn't run the economy without coal. And most of the coal at that time was not lignite or bituminous. It was anthracite, and it was being um, uh, mined in Pennsylvania, western Pennsylvania and Appalachia. And there was a coal strike, and the coal workers were dramatically abused, underpaid, etc, and not even allowed to unionize. And they struck. And it looked like winter, while well, winter was coming and it looked like there might be people that would die of hypothermia because of the lack of this fuel. So Roosevelt, the first time any president had done such a thing, intervened and called all of the principals, including the head of the United Mine Workers, to the White House for a conference and tried to settle it and eventually did. So pick it up from there, Lindsay.
2: Yeah, there's a fantastic book that sort of talks about all of his trust busting and his relationship with huge economic powers that I want to recommend. It's by Susan Burfield, who's actually a reporter for Bloomberg, and it's called The Hour of Fate, Theodore Roosevelt, J.P. Morgan, and the Battle to Transform American Capitalism. Highly recommend. And uh, this, this moment is a particular particularly big one, because as you said, Clay, it wasn't even just like the economy. Sometimes today, I think that we think of gas as like, oh, that's what we need to drive. It was how people warmed their houses. So as you as you said, there was a real fear that people were going to die as winter was coming. He invited John Mitchell, the head of the United Mine Workers, to come to the White House, which was a pretty big moment because it was a recognition that labor interests belonged in the conversation. It wasn't just trying to pressure business interests. And of course, the business interests who were at the White House were aghast that Mitchell would be included because it was an insult to, to sort of their natural position. The the moment is particularly funny one because Roosevelt had recently broken his leg. So he was in a wheelchair and he was infuriated by the fact that he couldn't move around and sort of physically intimidate people the way he usually did with his presence. And the meeting itself actually ended up not being all that productive. But what was really productive is because Mitchell felt like he at least had a little bit of an ally in Roosevelt. He was willing to commit to an independent commission to investigate the standards and to come up with a compromise. And the business interests were not. And that was a very politically unpopular position. And so what Roosevelt did is he relied on his secretary of war, Elhu Root, who was really good friends with J.P. Morgan. And he got Root to talk to Morgan to basically put pressure on the business interests to come to the table. And the compromise was just that. It was a compromise. It it did offer some protections to the workers who had been laboring in horrific conditions. It offered a a raise. I think 10% was the raise. Yeah. And then it, but it, it also got them back, got the businesses back to business. So it was able to sort of get everything moving again and was a huge moment in a recognition that the president sometimes does have to play a role in these crises and it can't always just be left to market forces Yeah, a
1: couple of quick things about that first just a, a puny little correction he didn't break his leg but he had damaged his leg and he was in a wheelchair and so mm. this didn't put him at his at his full rooseveltian best but he said that one of the um the coal operators one of the businessmen offended him so deeply in that meeting he wanted to get up out of his chair and chuck the guy out the white house window which i wish he had but uh but he was willing to call in the national army to run the, the coal mines if necessary, David. That's and, and so he was behaving in what we would call an extra constitutional way. He had no legal authority to do this. He knew that. But he also knew that this was a crisis and that this is what a president should do in a crisis of this sort. And he managed it adroitly. But here's what I think is so important, Lindsay. As you said, not everyone wanted Roosevelt to be president. There were a lot of well-meaning people who feared him, that he was just a bit too crazy and loose cannon and impulsive and untamable and not really one of us. So this came along and he handled it so well that people started to have deeper respect for him. So it's a bit like Ronald Reagan, the air traffic controllers strike. These early crises in a presidency can make or break a presidency. The fact that he handled this and successfully made a lot of people think, oh, this is a more formidable, a more mature, a more respectable figure than we might have thought. And so all that happened afterwards was in part made possible, David, by the credibility and the and the gravitas that Roosevelt achieved. It's, it's much more important than a strike. As Lindsay says, this was not just a strike. This was the lifeblood of the nation before we had hydroelectric power and before we had uh, any widespread use of, of oil or, or gasoline.
0: Let's, at this point, if we might, move into TR and post-presidency. I'm not sure where to start with
1: that. I can start with that. I'll put a proposition to Lindsay. I've spent a lot of time reading and writing about Theodore Roosevelt and uh, was able to help create the Theodore Roosevelt Center at Dickinson State University, where we are digitizing all of Roosevelt's papers, and I've just completed writing an exhibit on Roosevelt and Edward S. Curtis, the famous frontier photographer of Native Americans, a subject dear to David Swenson's heart. But I'd say this, Lindsay, that Roosevelt was one of the worst former presidents in American history. Uh, He he couldn't stand not being at the center of the arena. Um, He wanted back in. It was like a seven-year-old boy wanting to get back in. Uh, He resented Taft, even though he had handpicked him. Uh, then, when Wilson became President, that nearly drove him crazy. He thought Wilson had not prepared the nation for the war, which is true. He felt that Wilson uh brought the an entirely the wrong character and, and principle set to the war when it finally came, and he was a nuisance to the point to the point of nearly being just about toying with treason in the way that he he explicitly and repeatedly undermined Wilson's authority at a time of international crisis. Do you think that's too extreme, Lindsay?
2: No, I think that that's fair. I think the problem comes from the fact that when he won election, he very impetuously said that he would not seek another term. And he had no planning behind that. And immediately Edith was like, Well, that was a terrible thing. She said, drive Never do anything crazy. without
1: consulting with me
2: first. <laughs> <laughs> and and he almost immediately regretted it, but he felt like he couldn't go back on his word. And so he then was faced with the problem that a lot of presidents have been faced with since if you are a young man in office, what do you do once you leave? You can't have another job once you've been president. Well, Some can. John Quincy Adams did. But very few presidents have had another job. And so trying to figure out how to spend your time, how to use your influence, how to make the most of your gifts and your energy is really hard. And there have been a couple of people who have done it incredibly well, but most have decided to just be quiet and to try and kind of remain under the radar. And I think you started our our first segment on Roosevelt with the quote that he wanted to be the, bride at the baby every wedding, at every baptism, the, at the, the bride at every wedding, at and every the corpse at every funeral. And so for someone like that, staying underneath the radar was just not really an option, which I do think he had an understanding of himself in that way, which is why the first thing he did was to leave the country and to go do this crazy epic safari and world tour to – distract himself and, and to get out of the country and to try and give his successor, Taft,
3: an opportunity
2: to, to do well. He had handpicked Taft as a successor. He believed that Taft was going to continue all of his policies. He believed that Taft was going to retain his cabinet. And I will say, to Taft's credit, he may have been boring, but he was actually – very effective as a president in getting legislation passed because he was willing to compromise unlike Roosevelt sometimes and he got a lot of stuff through congress he got a lot of progressive reform through the house and through senate and that was a pretty remarkable thing but he was not the progressive spirit that Roosevelt wanted especially when it came to environmental matters and they eventually clashed and Roosevelt felt betrayed by what he saw as a broken promise and Taft lamented that they had been really close friends for decades their families were really close their children were close and he felt a personal betrayal there and that's why you know Roosevelt ultimately decided to form the Bull Moose party which um when that when that is sort of the last item on your CV is is never a great a never a great way to i think end your legacy
1: uh, yes i agree with all of that so some presidents have retired young and and been quite good, so Bill Clinton has not interfered much in the policies of his successors. Barack Obama, maybe the most vibrant former president of our lifetimes, has been very quiet about what happened in, in the aftermath. George W. Bush, a little bit older, but he has been very humble as a former president. Uh, most presidents find a way, but Roosevelt couldn't. He just had to be in that arena, and it just bugged him. And he felt, and I think he was right, that when the Great War came, the greatest cataclysm of the modern age in Western civilization, that one and only American should be at the helm, and it was he. And I think he was right. Of course, that's not how our system works, but he would have been a tremendous president of the United States during World War I, and he would not have bungled the League of Nations and the 14 points in the way that Woodrow Wilson did. Roosevelt was a Hamiltonian. He was a realist. He accepted the world for what it was, that there are good actors and bad actors, and that and idealism is interesting, but it cannot be allowed to color uh, hard-headed realism about public policy. And so, you know, that's part of what bothered him, Lindsay, is that if, if, if Wilson had been a Rooseveltian sort of president, he still would have been upset, but at least he would have felt that the country was in the right sort of hands, right? Right.
2: I think you and I need to talk about Wilson because I think you and I might be like exactly on the same page about this Finally, and, we agree uh, on something. there are not <laughs> there are not too many people that feel as strongly about Wilson as I do, so I think this could be a very exciting discussion topic
1: We're almost out of time, I think david we
0: are and and we haven't we haven't even touched on these epic trips that uh that t r
1: did his his trip in the on the river of doubt beautifully written about by my friend Candace Millard, who has a new book coming out on the source of the Nile, which is one of my favorite topics, the search for the source of the Nile. This has been so interesting. We've only touched the surface. David, I think we covered all 10, but never by number.
0: You know, it's a difficult task the two of you have given me. I do my best.
1: You're great at it. I mean, I can see you despairing and rolling your eyes as we roll on and on and on.
2: We adopt Alice Roosevelt's spirit, and we cannot be contained.
1: Alice Roosevelt said, if you have nothing good to say, come sit by me.
0: (laughs) So what's up in the future, you two? Where are we going to go next?
1: Well, I have an idea. A friend of mine named Thad from Louisville sent this really interesting letter that I passed on to Lindsay in which he sort of says, why didn't Jefferson do certain things the, the, that,
2: basically the to sum up the the email it was why was he such a hypocrite
1: right his inconsistencies when there were moments in his life when he could have addressed these and didn't for some reason
0: i i think that might be a dull show neither one of you would have much to say about that I, so
1: we're going to do that we're going to do alice uh the famous daughter of Theodore Roosevelt. we
2: do the Constitutional Convention at some point. The Constitutional yeah. Convention.
0: Well, we are out of time, so maybe we, the two of you can hang around afterwards and, uh, and let me know where you're going next. But uh, it's time to say goodbye.
1: Lindsay, we are so glad to have you as our correspondent. This series has delighted our audiences. We get lots of mail about it. Someone told me that the John Jay program was one of their favorite programs, and I thought, dream higher, honey. But there you go. (laughs) But anyway, thank you so much, and uh, Godspeed to you and your family. And we will see all of you next week for another exciting edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour.
3: The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826 and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. To obtain a copy of this or any show for a $12 donation, please call 701-575-0727. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson.